One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you're doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I'll also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and say, If we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they're persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard rendered it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one, that one they also beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. And Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, that you do not show partiality but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Well, uh, the next reading is on the, uh, the bigger handout, this headed sermon outline. And uh, you'll see there under the question, How should Christians relate to the government? Romans 13. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason, 
They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is why you also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's been written for us. And so tonight we pray, may your word do your work in our lives. Show us more of what it means to be more like your son each day. Amen. Okay, well, can I ask you please to make sure you've got the handout open in front of you. Uh, it's a fairly detailed outline of what we're going to cover tonight. On the screen behind me, there's a reminder that we'll take Q&A after the talk tonight. Uh, we didn't last week because of communion, but we will this week like we normally do. So if you have questions, just text them in and we'll get to a few at the end of the talk. Uh, well, we've arrived at one of Jesus' most famous sayings. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Uh, it's his brilliant retort to the trap that the Jewish leaders have tried to set him when they ask, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Because if Jesus says, don't pay tax, well, the Romans will have him for treason. But if Jesus says, do pay tax, he'll lose all popular support because the Jews hated their Roman overlords. Of course, the thing about Jesus' answer is that he doesn't really answer the question at all. In fact, he just raises more questions. I mean, sure, it's fine to say, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God's what is God's, but, but what belongs to whom? And so tonight what I thought I'd do is talk about, and you'll be relieved to hear, I'm going to talk about more than just taxes. And instead, I want to try and answer this question, how should Christians relate to the government? And part of the reason for that is that in the first reading, the Luke passage, you will have noticed that the word authority was in bold. It came up four times. This is a passage all about how we relate to those who are over us. Now, in many ways, of course, it's the perfect opportunity to do so. As you know, there's a state election next weekend. Um, and, of course, there have been ongoing conversations in our society over the last two years uh, throughout the COVID period, either about government overreach or the government not doing enough. Now, clearly, I'm not going to cover every issue tonight, but hopefully this will get us thinking biblically and theologically. Uh, what we're going to do is focus on the Romans 13 passage, because there what Paul does is he tries to take Jesus' big picture principle and apply it in practice. And that's a good place for us to focus. And I want to say three things tonight, really. I want to say something about God, I want to say something about the governing authorities, and then I want to say something about us. And that corresponds to points one, two, and three on your handout. I want to start with point one. God uses the governing authorities to achieve his purposes. God uses the governing authorities to achieve his purposes. If you look at Romans 13, verse 1, at the top left of your handout, uh, Paul's exhortation is quite striking. Verse 1, let everyone be subject to, literally submit, let everyone submit to the governing authorities. And the most basic reason he gives is because they have been established by God, uh, presumably to carry out God's will in his world. Now, verse 2 builds on that idea to say that anyone who doesn't submit 
brings judgment on themselves for rebelling against what God has, has instituted. Now, the way which Paul frames that, he seems to be carrying the implication that judgment here, it's not just judgment from the governing authority, it's actually judgment from God himself who appointed that ruler. But it's verse 4 that in many ways sums up the whole idea in one really simple, clear image. And I've printed it there for you on your handout. Uh, the image from verse 4, the one in authority is God's servant. The one in authority is God's servant. And so to be as blunt as possible, that means that when we disobey the government, we are disobeying the God whom they serve. Okay, well, if that's the principle, what's truly remarkable in verse 4 is that the, government, the governing authorities are described as God's servant for two purposes. Did you notice? It's in bold. One of their purposes is for, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer, but the other purpose, according to Romans 13, why God has servants, the governing authorities established over us, the other purpose is for your good. It's for your good. Now let me say, I know that at times we can find it hard to see how the authorities are acting for our good. But I do want to acknowledge it's much easier in our context than it is for many others around the world across time and space. Let me give you one example. Paul is writing the letter to the Romans. Uh, this is around, sometime around 50, 60 AD. As Paul writes, and there's a slide on the screen to make the point for you, as Paul writes, state-sponsored persecution of Christians is on the rise. In fact, the Emperor Nero, uh, the Roman historian Tacitus records, the Emperor Nero as setting fire to Christians and using their bodies as human torches. And yet... Paul, writing to the Roman Christians, says the authorities are still God's servants for their good. Now, that's obviously deeply confronting. I mean, how on earth is God using those people? But at the same time, it's deeply comforting. It's saying that those authorities, those servants of God, they will answer to him for what they do. And whatever they do, still God can use it for our good. To give a slightly different illustration, uh, there's a reference there for you on your handout, Acts chapter 4. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 27. Uh, here they're reflecting on what happened when the authorities crucified Jesus. Acts 4, 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Isn't that extraordinary? We're being told that as the authorities crucified Jesus, as they put him to death, still God uses it for our good. How? Well, in Jesus' death and resurrection, we finally can receive the forgiveness of sins. All of this implies that when it comes to the governing authorities, and I printed there on your handout, obedience is the norm, disobedience is the exception. 
When it comes to the governing authorities, obedience is the norm, disobedience is the exception. Now, before we get to what that looks like for us in practice, let me say something about the implications then for the governing authorities of them being God's servants. This is point two on your handout. Point two, the governing authorities, they will answer to God for their behaviour. They will answer to God for their behaviour. So the reasoning goes, if the governing authorities are God's servants, if they've been established by him and if they've been instituted by him, it stands to reason that they must also eventually answer to him, answer to their master. Good example comes in Acts chapter 12. I've given you a reference there on your handout. Uh, there's actually a typo. It's actually talking about King Herod executing James, the brother of John, uh, which is what he does for no particular reason other than the fact that he's a Christian. King Herod executes James, and then he goes after Peter and imprisons him, although miraculously an angel rescues Peter. But to all intents and purposes, it looks as if King Herod is getting away with it. Not so. In Acts chapter 12, God strikes him down. Uh, King Herod is eaten by intestinal worms for failing to acknowledge the one who put him on his throne in the first place. Can I say, once again, it is deeply comforting to know that when the authorities of this world that are clearly evil, like Nero, like in North Korea today, when the authorities in this world, which are clearly evil, look as if they're getting away with it, look as if they're never being held to account, what we tell ourselves is that they will answer to their master Jesus, even if never to us. Now, as an aside, can I say that I can't even begin to imagine what it would be like to live in a time or a place like that under Nero, maybe today in North Korea. And actually, I just thank God that it's not our reality here in Adelaide in the 21st century. Uh, it's the reason why, and I will go back to it at this point, it's the reason why on the very happy topic of taxation, I tell everyone that I'm very happy to pay taxes because it means I get to live in a country like Australia. So actually, each time I pay tax, it's an opportunity to say, thank you, God, for your blessings that you've poured out on us here. Now, before we get to our response generally, one implication, I think, of the fact that the governing authorities will answer to God for their behaviour, one implication is that you and I, we are to pray for our leaders. We're to pray for our leaders. Because as Christians, we know it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God unprepared. The authorities won't just face the electorate. One day, they will face God. And they'll have to answer to him for what they have done. Maybe that's the reason why... In the New Testament, we are never encouraged to pray that our leaders give us what we want. We're never encouraged to pray that prayer. Rather, we're told to pray that our leaders' decisions might enable God's will to be done in all of our lives. Take, for example, 1 Timothy 2. I printed there at the bottom left. 
Paul writing to Timothy, here's what he says. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Pray for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Do you know at the moment, when we pray for the people of Ukraine, it is right, of course, that we pray that they might have peace and the end to that horrible violence and conflict. But more than that, we ought be praying for their ability to live in all godliness and holiness so that they might know, know the Lord more and love him better. It poses a challenge for us, I think, a litmus test, you might say. Think back over the last two years. How much time have you spent complaining about the authorities or trying to circumvent their decisions? And then think about how much time you have spent praying for the authorities and for their accountability to Jesus. Um, in our Sunday gatherings, uh, this is why we regularly pray for our political leaders, and of course we're going to do just that in a few moments tonight. Well, uh, God uses the governing authorities to achieve his purposes. The governing authorities will answer to God for their behaviour. Thirdly then, and this is the right-hand side of the leaflet, um, we are to submit to the authorities which God has put over us. We are to submit to the authorities which God has put over us. Our responsibility is to submit to our leaders. Now, of course, the big question is, what does that look like in practice? And I want to say three things here. They're all listed on the right-hand side. Firstly, it means that generally we want to obey our leaders. Generally, we want to obey our leaders. Now, I've emphasised in that word want because my big idea for tonight is that if obedience is the norm and disobedience is the exception then actually we need to do more than just obey our leaders or try to obey our leaders. Actually, we are people who want to obey our leaders because if they are God's servants, then when we do what they say, we are doing what God wants. We are to submit to our leaders and obey them. And of course, the big question then is, in what areas exactly? Well, given what I've said... The answer is, in as many areas as we can. In as many areas as we can. That is, the list of all the matters in which we must obey our authorities is a very, very long list. And the list of situations where we might possibly disobey them is a very, very short list. To make my point, I would like you to behold my wonderful diagram that I have produced. It took me a long time, so I want you to just go, ooh, ah, when it comes up on screen. Do you like it? it? took me a while to come up with this one. All the laws from the governing authorities, if they're all laid out, the ones that we must obey, there are a lot of them, and the ones that we might possibly disobey, there are very, very few of them. So what goes in the green box? What must we obey? Well, let me give you some examples. We should pay taxes. Uh, it's okay to minimise them, but we shouldn't avoid them. We should not murder or steal or bear false witness. 
we ought obey public health orders. Uh, we shouldn't speed, drink and drive, or drive without a licence. We should follow council building regulations, vote in elections, and always use a licensed electrician, even though it's more expensive. We shouldn't jaywalk or sell drugs or litter. We should obey those very strange customs and biosecurity laws that our country has if you're game to risk travelling overseas ever again. And we should always pay for public transport even if there is no ticket collector around. And the list goes on. All the things in which we ought obey our governing authorities. What goes in the might possibly disobey category? Well, not very much. Which means it's kind of odd how much time we spend discussing and debating the handful of possible exceptions instead of just getting on with keeping the norm. Can I say the mere fact that our leaders are imperfect and flawed, or the fact that our leaders mistreat us, or the fact that our leaders don't acknowledge the heavenly master they serve, or the fact that most of the time, lots of our leaders are just not very likeable, none of those reasons give us the right to simply ignore them. And can I say, that's the reason why, for the last two and a bit years, the Trinity Network's COVID response has always been to want to obey our authorities, even when we haven't liked it, and even when, to be frank, we couldn't work out what they were trying to say. Because lots of the time, who would know what they were saying, right? In those situations, it would have been tempting just to throw up our hands and go, oh, why bother? It's all too hard. No. As Christians, our default tendency, our instinctive preference is to want to keep following the rules. All of which, of course, raises the question, why is this so hard? And why is this so hard for us Australians? Especially when you consider the fact that, well, quite frankly, it is pretty easy to obey our government's laws, certainly compared to other people's experience in other countries. Why do we find it so hard? Well, I take it at one level, that's because at heart, we are just so anti-authoritarian. We hate it when anyone tries to tell us what to do. I mean, Showing respect to the government is hardly something that Australians are world famous for. By contrast, I can think of other countries, other cultures, where you would say, oh yeah, they're generally a pretty compliant bunch. I know our political leaders don't always cover themselves with glory, but I'm saying that when we are wickedly disrespectful of them, we are disrespecting the God they serve. When we mock them, we are mocking God for appointing them in the first place. What does that look like in practice? Well, at the very least, I think it means we really, really should try hard to stop constantly complaining about them. That's what everyone else in our society does, right? They complain about the government all the time. And I say that because, well... If you've ever tried to lead someone who's always whinging but nevertheless goes and does it, it's hard to feel like they really want to do what you're asking of them. 
Okay, first thing it means to submit to authorities, generally we want to obey them. Having said that, point two, there are situations where we will choose to disobey. That's because there is biblical precedence for what's called civil disobedience, for disobeying the authorities. A good example, printed there on your handout, is where King Darius prohibits prayer in Daniel 6, and of course Daniel goes ahead and defies him and just keeps praying, and God commends him for it. But once again, as I said throughout this talk, if obedience is the norm and disobedience is the exception then those situations will be very, very rare. They will be a last resort, not a first response. They'll never be impulsive or rash or hasty or high-handed. Actually, when we recall that for most of the Bible, God's people didn't live in liberal democracies like ours. For most of the Bible, God's people lived under oppressive dictatorships. And what's striking is how non-confrontational God's people are. And yet, really, is that a surprise? Think about Jesus. When Jesus was crucified, Jesus, the one whom we follow, the one who we long to be like, when Jesus was crucified, even though he could have called down 12 legions of angels to rescue him... Still he prayed not, Almighty God, destroy them. He prayed simply, Father, forgive them. As an aside, I think, showing respect to the authorities also means showing respect to others who think differently. Now, once again, I've said this a few times over the last couple of months, uh, when I talk to other church pastors... I am just so thankful for how our church family has tried to love each other throughout COVID. I know that we have a whole range of views on some really controversial topics, from activity restrictions to vaccine mandates through to masks. And I know that we've not been perfect in our disagreement, but what I've mostly seen has been generous, gracious patience. Because ultimately, we don't answer to each other. We answer to God. Well, let me say that one situation where civil disobedience is justified, I think, is when it comes to evangelistic freedom. That is, when the ability to proclaim the gospel is being curtailed, that is one of the situations where we might choose to disobey the authorities. A good example comes there for you on your handout from Acts 4 and Acts 5. What's happened is that the Jewish leaders have tried to gag the early apostles, prevent them from talking about Jesus, who's risen from the dead. And so in Acts 4, in response, Peter and John reply, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And so having been commanded not to talk about Jesus, they go ahead and do it anyway. In fact, they suffer terribly for it, and they keep on doing it anyway. So look at Acts chapter 5. They called the apostles in. They had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name 
Here's the part I love. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So one situation where civil disobedience is justified is in proclaiming the gospel. Question for us tonight, I think, is, is this why we resist the government? Is this why we resist the government? Because we want more freedom to talk about Christ's death and resurrection and this law or this mandate might somehow prevent us? Or is the real reason why we resist the government because we just don't like it when our personal freedoms get restricted and we're trying to dress them up as religious objections? I want to acknowledge this is a hard question. It's a question that tests the motives of each of our hearts. One way to tell, I think, is to ask... How vocal were we in publicly speaking up about Jesus before? Because it seems to me that unless we were doing so before, it's not really an exception that we can claim now. And as I shared with you earlier in Family News, it seems to me that our ability to proclaim Christ hasn't really suffered all that much during COVID. Oh, yes, I know it's been hard, it's been inconvenient, there's been a bunch of things that we haven't been able to do. But, and I want to be clear about this, churches were never specifically targeted by government regulations. Capacity constraints and masks, they've all applied to all indoor gatherings, not just to religious ones. And despite all of that, we've managed to plant a new church, send 150 people actually to three new churches and still welcome 156 first-time visitors. So it seems to me that wanting to obey the authorities hasn't really harmed a gospel proclamation all that much. Generally, we want to obey our leaders. There are six situations where we choose to disobey them. Let me finish then at point three. What if we just disagree with our leaders? What if we simply disagree with them? Well, here's what I say. The gift and privilege of living in a liberal democracy as opposed to a totalitarian regime or a lawless society, the gift and privilege of living in a liberal democracy is that we can get more involved in the political process. I want to say that the bare minimum is to set aside enough time to read the candidate's policy platform before you vote. That's the bare minimum, I think to read about what they at least claim they stand for before you cast a vote one way or the other. And that's the case whether it's your first election, as it will be for some this coming Saturday, or your 50th election. Do you know, sometimes I hear people say, I always vote for X or I always vote for Y. Um, I don't actually think that's very commendable because political parties do change. And our world keeps changing. So I think it's incumbent on us actually to take the time to read what our prospective leaders will say that we might choose as best we can. And let me put it this way. If we can't be bothered even to do that much, I don't think we have any right to complain about the leaders that we end up with. 
Uh, in the end, what do you think that compulsory voting says about Australians? What do you think compulsory voting says about us, other than the fact that everyone knows that we couldn't be bothered voting, so they have to threaten to punish us if we don't? When billions around the world quite literally would die for that gift and privilege. Now, for the record, I am not telling you who to vote for on Saturday. I'm not telling you who to vote for. My comment is that both major parties are good at times and both major parties are bad at times. And the one thing I'm certain of is that neither is particularly committed to bringing about God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And the same observation, I think, could be made of the independents and the minor parties as well. In other words, I'm saying that a change of government won't solve all of our gripes. No government will. Because democracy is better than the alternative, I think. But it's not the solution to all our problems. Never forget that Russia is a democracy. So I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, but I will finish with two suggestions for your consideration, whoever you vote for, as to how you make your choice. Two suggestions. Here's the first. Please resist the urge to vote primarily out of self-interest. Please resist the urge, the temptation, to vote primarily out of self-interest. Now, I realise it's very hard to resist that temptation. It's very hard because it's actually the basis on which politicians appeal to us. Politicians basically say, vote for me and I'll make your life better than the other guy will. I know I'm guilty of this. I know how eagerly I scan the tables and the charts that they, prevent, that they print, showing you which party will give you better tax breaks than the other so that you'll get more money in your wallet at the end of the day. Please resist the urge to make your choices based purely on self-interest. Instead, and here's my second suggestion, perhaps consider voting for the party which, after you've done your careful research, you think will best enable us to live peaceful and quiet lives in all holiness and godliness. Okay, uh, last week I talked about Christian books. Uh, this week I just want to refer you to some articles, which aren't quite as long as books, of course. Um, the one that I want to refer you to, there's a reference there for you. It's called How to Vote Christianly um, at www.socialissues.org.au. I forgot the .au, sorry about that. Um, it's a great, it's a short article written by an Australian author and pastor, many of you will have heard of him, called John Dixon. He just tries to raise a series of questions that as Christians we ought to think through before we cast our votes. And you might find that helpful.